we're reading from John chapter 9. You can find it on page 1075. We're not quite going to read it the way it says on the card. We're going to do verses 1 to 7 and then jump forward to verse 35 and go on to verse 41. As Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. For as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world... I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of of Siloam. This means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So from verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Thanks, Michael, for reading that for us. I'll explain why we broke up um, the reading a little bit uh, as as we go on. But let me pray for us as we come uh, to look at these words. Heavenly Father, we are people who are very small. We're creatures. Uh, We're small, not just in size, but in understanding, and especially on spiritual things. We could never know you or comprehend you unless you spoke to us in a way that we can understand. And thank you that in the scriptures you've done that. So please would you help us now as we consider these words and help us hear what you're saying. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, it's the new year. uh, So gym memberships are bound to soar at any point now. Maybe you've signed up already. Or there's all the New Year fads. Uh, Matt was mentioning some of them. I, I picked up on a few just from the news. Dry January. Uh, try January. Have you heard this one? Uh, that's, uh, that's where you start doing triathlons in January. No way am I doing that one. Veganuary. I think that's how you pronounce it. Vig- I wasn't quite sure as I was reading it. Veganuary. I didn't really know what it meant. But I think it's going vegan. Uh, going vegan for, for January. I once joined a gym in January uh, once. And I went to a spinner's class. Have you ever done a spinner's class? It's, it's like this. These rows, rows of bikes. Uh, and there's some enthusiastic... A like ferocious almost trainer at the front who's kind of encouraging you towards speed and perseverance. 
as I came to start it, I looked at, I'd never done one of those before. I looked around the group and I honestly looked at the different people doing it. And I saw one middle-aged woman in the corner and I thought, I'll do better than her. That's all I'm aiming for. 20 minutes later, she walked past me and I was practically sitting on the ground going, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't breathe. As she walked past, I thought she was judging me. Um, thinking she was better than me. I hate people like that. I hate people that look at other people and think they'll do better than them. But I, I was kind of humbled. True fitness was exposed then and there. Here's a question. How, how do you feel? How do you feel in those moments when your failings are made obvious? How do you, how do you feel at, at those moments? Not just with fitness. Maybe it's with other things. Um, it could be anything in work or just at home. How, how do you feel in those moments when your failings are made obvious? Uh, are you grateful for the reality, Jack? Do you say, well, that's good. I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's out in the open now. And we'll get something like that tonight. So we look in John 9 uh, and a bit further around than that. It's a good story, isn't it? Maybe you've read it before, John chapter 9. It's one of my favorite stories in John's gospel. Jesus heals a blind man. But thinking about it this week, I reckon it can feel a bit like leftover turkey three days after Christmas. You read a story like this and you can kind of think, we've had enough of this now. Have you been feeling like that with the turkey? We've just had, a, we've had enough of it now. I kind of think that with this story. I mean, Jesus heals a blind man, but there's kind of, as you read it, there's nothing new. I mean, he's already healed people. We've seen that already. There's nothing new there. And sometimes when you read stories like that, you think, well, there's nothing personal. My eyes are okay. Uh, my eyes are fine. So there's nothing really for me. And there's plenty of people who have damaged eyesight. And we're not saying as we read this that every blind person is somehow going to immediately be sorted. So nice stories, you read it. But nothing new. Nothing personal. Uh, sometimes when you're reading through the Gospels, it can kind of feel like just one thing after another, can't it? A, a series of unconnected incidents. Uh, and we do that. We read little bits of it. And yet, those little parts are meant to be building a bigger picture. John, who's, who's writing this gospel for us, is building, building his message up. Uh, this story, it really makes sense in relation to everything else that comes before. And did you spot, just as Michael read it, it was that bit at the end, the impact Jesus thinks this is meant to have on you. If you get what he's saying at the beginning, the impact comes at the end. The person who was thrown out was the blind man. He was thrown out of the synagogue. John reckons with this story, if you get it, here's the impact. A division will be made around Jesus. You'll end up on one side or the other. Verse 38 You'll either call Jesus Lord and you'll worship him as God. Or, verses 39 and 40, you'll be offended. A bit like me in the gym. How dare you judge me? How dare you walk past me and judge me? But John's saying you'll be like that with Jesus. You'll be offended feeling he's judging you. If you've been at Christchurch last time, you know we've been going through John's gospel, but, and we're doing that for this whole year. We've had a break over Christmas, so, so coming back into it, we're going to take two weeks on chapter 9. That's why we've split up the readings. We're going to go right through it next week, uh, all the verses in chapter 9, this one big story. But as we come back into John's gospel, what I want to try and do tonight is just kind of recapture the thought flow uh, of this whole gospel where, where we've got to. 
Now, so we're going to do that tonight. Do, do you remember back at the beginning of where we started chapter 1, John introduces Jesus. And he tells us he's someone who is with God and is God. But he does it with that enigmatic title. He says it this way, in the beginning was the Word. An enigmatic title there. He introduces him as the Word. And you remember some of the ideas behind that, this, this title John uses, this Jesus we encounter. He is God's self-expression. To encounter him, to encounter this Word of God is to encounter God himself. More than that, he's kind of saying he's like the final word on everyone and everything. Whatever he says is going to have ultimate authority. And John says he is the word. It's not just that he's come with a word. It's not just that he's come with a message. No, he is the word. Is everything he says. And everything he does. Start of 2019. Right at the beginning of the year. What kind of word is Jesus? What is he going to say to you? over this year? How will he speak to you? Because we get back into John's gospel. Here's, here's three things to have in mind. Uh, they're, they're on the little handout in the back of the card, but have these in mind. He's, he's a humbling word. He's a divisive word. And he's also a gracious word. You cast your mind back through John's gospel. You'll remember there's all sorts of awkward conversations. I don't know if you enjoy being involved in awkward conversations. I've got a friend who loves them. She loves it when conversations get awkward. I hate it. I hate it. But in John's gospel, there's been all sorts of kind of awkward conversations that have taken place. Chapter 3, Jesus met a man called Nicodemus. He was one of the most educated men of the day in the the kind of Jerusalem elite, he would have been able to hold his own intellectually with anyone in Cambridge. But within a few minutes of speaking, Jesus says to him, you are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? He's kind of saying to him, look, when it comes to God, Nicodemus, the problem with you is you're always going to struggle with your thinking. You just think about the kind of man he's saying that to. For an intellectual man, that's a humbling word. That's a really humbling word. In chapter 4, just on into the next chapter, he meets a woman in Samaria by a well. And it becomes clear over the course of their conversation that she's someone who's had multiple sexual relationships. It becomes clear because Jesus brings it up in conversation, not so much to embarrass her, although I'm sure she felt that. No, his comments seem more to explain why he said to her previously, look, if you knew, I think it's going to come off on the screen, if, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. There's all sorts of metaphor and images in that, but as you as you wade through the imagery, if you remember back to that story, you realize he's saying, look, whatever kind of outward show you put on, whatever kind of outward show you're putting on, even if you're, if you're living, ignoring the norms of society, which you seem to be doing, just doing your own thing with relationships and saying to the rest of the people in your town, well, stuff them all. I don't care what they think. I know what's going on. You're someone who's pursuing satisfaction in all the wrong places 
and your multiple partners show you've not got what you're looking for. You make out you're okay, but your life's messed up. You think at some point he's, he's questioning her lifestyle choices. More than that, he's judging them. He's making a judgment call on them. Try saying that to someone today. Try questioning someone's lifestyle choices. And you'll see their pride kick in. How dare you? How dare you speak to me like that? How dare you question me? Uh, why does her pride kick in? Because it's a humbling word, isn't it? And as you read through John's Gospel, it's not as if Jesus is just like that with a few picked out individuals. He'll even be like that with crowds of people. One stage in chapter 6, he meets a crowd of kind of religious enthusiasts that are following him. And he says, in effect, to them, you really don't have a clue about religious things. You read through John's gospel and you realize Jesus is saying, look, whether you're someone who's as clever as clever, or whether you're someone who likes to live life ignoring the rules, whether it's your parents, you think, I don't care what they say, or leaders, or society in general, I'm just going to do my own thing, I don't care. Or even if you're religiously excitable, Jesus is saying you just don't impress. And he would say the same to us. But he's saying more. John, as he, as he writes his gospel, he, he plays around with all sorts of imagery. And one of the kind of images he uses is this kind of, the, the image of light and darkness. Back at the beginning, chapter 1, Jesus is described as the light shining in the darkness. In chapter 3, Nicodemus comes, middle of the night. Chapter 4, this woman by the well meets him, middle of the day. It's, it's light and darkness all the way through, and you wonder, what's going on? What are you saying, John? I've been reading Lord of the Rings with my two little boys. They're nine and seven. We're reading through it. We're halfway through book two, uh, The Two Towers. We're loving it. Uh, but the baddie in it, if you've read it, you know it. You've maybe seen the films if you've not read the book. Sauron, he's sometimes called the Dark Lord on his dark throne. And I asked my boys, why do you think he's called the Dark Lord? And they get it. They know how the image works. You don't need to explain it. And you know it too. You know what darkness is about there. And it's the same in John's Gospel. John tells us, chapter 3, that this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people, you and me, love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. That's the kind of Jesus you meet in John's Gospel. A staff Christmas meal. We had a staff Christmas meal. It was great fun. Uh, one of the things we did was Secret Santa. Have you done Secret Santa over Christmas? You do that kind of thing? I love it. Uh, the way we do it, everyone had to bring a present. And then we were all given a, a time when we had to choose one. Then you had to open it and pick a number. And the number would correspond with a rule that would tell you you had to do something. Uh, Rachel Browning. She opened, one of our staff here, she opened a present, and she got this. This mug, Mr. Grumpy. I laughed. I was sitting across from her. I laughed, and I said to Rachel, we always get the present we deserve. What a mean thing to say. What a mean thing to say. Then she picked the number. It was number 24 or something, and the rule apparently was she had to swap presents with me. (laughs) Do you know how I felt? Felt a bit grumpy. I really didn't want this present. I liked the one I already had. You always get the present you deserve. Am I grumpy? I started thinking about that. 
my children laughed and said, you are Mr. Grumpy. You wonder sometimes, don't you? Do you wonder sometimes what people think of you? I bet you're like me a little bit. You come home sometimes after being out somewhere and you, you're replaying in your head the kind of things you said and you say, oh, I hope they didn't think, I hope they, I hope they didn't think I was being a bit grumpy. I hope they didn't think I'm, I was saying too much about that person. I hope they didn't think I, I'm a bit of a complainer or a moaner. You, you worry about what other people think of you, don't you? you? You think about those things from time to time. I tell you what's more important is, is finding out the answer to the question, what does God think of you? Chapter 3, verse 19 in John's Gospel is part of the answer. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Jesus is saying, you and I not only do evil things, but what we like to do is try and cover up. Now we know we do wrong things. But then what you do is you like to put on a show and make out you're good enough. Like me at the gym, I, I hate, I hated it. When someone shows up my failings, I have never done a spinner class again. Isn't that ridiculous? I could go back and try and get fitter. Instead of which, no, I'm not going anywhere near it. don't want people to, to see me like that. Jesus is saying, morally, spiritually, we like to think we're okay. I'm all right. I'm a good person. And we like to think the same about our friends. They're okay as well. They're, they're nice people as well. But we're not. Jesus says, in, in some ways, if you want it in a kind of aroma kind of ways, we stink. And if you think you're okay, it's only because you're comparing yourself with someone else who really stinks as well. And if you smell a little bit better than them, you kind of think, well, I'm okay. How do you feel? How do you feel at those moments when your failings are made obvious? So you meet Jesus in John's Gospel. And he's a humbling word, saying we're desperately sinful, needing a desperate solution. And yet along with that, he's, he's also a divisive word. Uh, reading through John, and a, a kind of sense of division begins to appear. Sides are described, choices are made, positions are taken, and not in some kind of unintended consequence kind of way. No, Jesus seems to provoke them. So chapter 5, he says this, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. He has crossed over from death to life. That's a big kind of statement, isn't it? It's kind of saying, look, Jesus' word is the dividing line. I've got a little rope here. You probably won't be able to see it. It's not, it's not a brilliant rope. But it's kind of saying, isn't it, with... With something like this, here's, I'll put it down the middle, you can kind of see it a little bit. Here's the kind of dividing line. It's not age or wealth, that's not the dividing line. It's not intellect, that's never the kind of dividing line. It's not your position on Brexit. We're still talking about that, aren't we? It feels like it's the dividing line for the country. It's not. In a much more profound way, there is another dividing line, the only dividing line. It's just Jesus and his word. 
Step one side of it, Jesus says it's eternal life. Step the other side of it, well, you know what he's saying. And choices begin to be made in John's gospel. Chapter 6, he's, he's teaching a group of disciples these kind of things. And John records this. On hearing it, he's teaching many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And he goes on to say, from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They looked like they were on this side. But the more Jesus spoke to them, it turned out they were actually on this side. And the divisions continue. You read on in John's Gospel, chapter 7, among a Jerusalem crowd. We hear this. The people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Not yet. There's some people who are just annoying, aren't they? I sometimes think I'm one of those people. There's sometimes, and maybe I am a lot of the time, there's some people who just say things that wind you up, rub you up the wrong way. They always seem to be wanting to say the awkward thing. Don't really care how you feel. Or just say something outrageous that's upsetting. But Jesus doesn't give that impression, does he? He doesn't feel like someone as you, you read about him who just likes to shock for the sake of it. You think his, his legacy wouldn't have lasted this long. He wouldn't have been regarded in the many warm ways he, he is if he was just like that. No, that's not the impression he, he gives. His words are humbling. You, you can't hear them and not feel something of that. His words are divisive. You realize they force you to make a choice, but you can't say he doesn't care. And even as you track back, and maybe you do this, track back through some of those awkward conversations in John's gospel, you find he's also, he's also a really gracious word. It's important that you hear that. The end of chapter 4, you want to go back and read some of these things again. He's, he's been asked by an anguished father to come and heal, see if he can do anything for his dying son. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. You can imagine what words like that, how they would land on an anguished father. The hope that begins to grow in him. And the man took Jesus at his word. And arriving home, he finds that his Son has recovered beyond all hope. A word was spoken by Jesus. Life's changed. A bit further back in that meeting with the Samaritan woman by the well, this kind of this woman that many people would have written off. And yet you hear the offer that Jesus puts in front of her. If you knew the gift of God. And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you. He would have given you living water. They're just for the asking. Don't have to do anything. Don't have to prove anything. Don't have to achieve anything else if you just ask. If you just ask, I'll give it to you. And he goes on to explain Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to 
eternal life, and you see imagery gives way to reality there. This water he's talked about. Here's the gift. I give you eternal life just for the asking. The Christ you meet here in John's gospel, the word who is God, he is a gracious word. He's concerned about your misery. And he comes with the offer of a gift of new life through him. But it's what he encounters in people like you and me. He's bound up in selfish pride, convincing ourselves we're fine as we are, we're, we're as good as we need to be. And even when we're bad, we're not really that bad. And in the end, we'll probably be okay with God. It'll be all right. So we don't need a Savior who would have to die for us. So what must a gracious word, if he's going to be truly gracious, what must a gracious word become? Well, if he wants to be gracious to us, he must become a humbling word and a divisive word in order to bring us to our senses. I read, came across this quote during the week from G.K. Chesterton, the, the author of many years back. He, he wrote this, the test of true religion is that it is always trying to make men feel truths as facts, always trying to, to make men not merely admit the truth, but see, smell, handle, hear, and devour the truth. You understand what he's saying? Here's what true religion does. It, it presses it on you. Because it knows what we're like. We sometimes... You know the way a stone skims off the top of the water. You love skimming stones and doing that kind of thing. Sometimes the truth's like that. We, it hits us and we sort of get it, but it just bounces off us. Skims away. Oh yes, we need somebody like Jesus. But Jesus knows that's not good enough for us. It needs to be pressed into us until we see, smell, handle, hear, and devour the truth. This is really true. It's got to go in deep. And so I know we've been a long way away from it. We're just going to come back to it for a minute or two at the end. You come back to John chapter 9 with this gracious Christ who has come to us wanting us to see, smell, handle, hear, and devour the truth. And what does he put in front of us? Well, a man who has been blind from birth. And not as his disciples wonder because of some kind of specific sin that is particular to this man. No, this has been staged. See what Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 3? Now, this has happened. This has been staged so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And you understand what's going on here? We'll, we'll come back to it a bit more next week. No, this man is here to say to us, this is what we're all like. And this man is here to say to us, to help us see, to help us hear, to help us feel, to give us a taste of what we need God to do for us. And it's a humbling word, isn't it? Because what this is saying to us is from the moment you were born, you have been blind to God. And it's been a blindness you choose. Doing your own thing, saying God doesn't matter. When we think about God, we easily in our minds, we want to just make him out to be some kind of cozy friend. There to make us feel happy. Someone we can complain against when 
things don't seem to go our way and we feel he's let us down. But Jesus speaks a humbling word that says, you are blind. He's a holy God, perfect in his holiness. And you're fallen very far in your sin. And you need a savior who can open your eyes and bring you forgiveness. And as always with Jesus, his humbling words, it brings division. By verse 38, the blind man who's been healed gratefully worships him as God. He's found a gracious Savior who's, who's helped him in an undeserved way. But there are some others, verses 40 and 41, who have taken offense at him. And Jesus says they're left with their sin and with their guilt. But just as we draw to a close, what, what does that mean for us? Here's a couple of things to think about. As we head into 2019, if you're here and you're someone who's, who's already a Christian, as you think about growing over this year, this year ahead, what should you expect if you're going to be someone who's listening to Jesus this year? What should you expect to happen? Well, reading John's Gospel, you should find Jesus to be a humbling word, a divisive word, and a gracious word. <coughs> humbling, if you're listening to him, expect to hear him say things to you this year that will humble you, that cause you to acknowledge where you've gone wrong and how much you need a saviour. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think you'll find he also begins to change you as he does that from someone who keeps saying, look, I'll just do what I want. And to someone who says, Lord Jesus, please would you help me do what you want? You'll become humble. You'll also find, he also forces you to choose sides. He will be a divisive word. He'll force you to choose sides, to side with him even when others don't. And you will feel that. You'll feel it at work sometimes. You'll feel it at school. You'll feel it at university. <coughs> I'm on this side of the line. Some of the choices I make. And friends who I care about, who look at me, are on the other side of the line. And that will be obvious. It'll be obvious to them, be obvious to you, by what you say and what you do. And you also discover, if you listen to him, that he will be a gracious word to you. As he opens your eyes and keeps them open, you'll be more convinced that he's always kind and that he cares for you. And that even when life is hard, you're not outside of his concern. And what will grow on you is contented trust and obedience that will show itself in gratitude it says thank you to him. So a word of warning about New Year fads. But you might want to do them. Veganuary, dry January, try January. They're all right in their place. But I think they often tend to be short term, don't they? And they're the kind of things that can make us self-reliant because it's all stuff that we can do ourselves. And in some ways, I know with me, they can make me self-righteous as well. And in the end, they won't produce the growth we really need. Because what we need is a word that humbles us, that divides us for Jesus, that forces us to choose him and brings us grace 
his undeserved favor. We're going to be coming to the Lord's Supper in a moment. Before we do that, let's have a moment just for quiet reflection and prayer.